Welcome to Agatha Christie, She Watched, our spoiler-heavy look at the movie and TV adaptations of the mystery genre's greatest writer. I'm Bill Peschel of Peschel Press, publishers of the annotated novels of Agatha Christie, and today we'll be talking about blues singers, hidden couples, Hollywood scandals, and disfiguring faces. It's Death on the Nile, the 2022 version, directed by Kenneth Branagh and starring Gal Gadot, Army Hammer, and Branagh as Hercule Poirot. But first, let me introduce my partner in marriage, as well as crime of the fictional kind, Teresa Peschel. Hello, Teresa. Hi, Bill. Here we are, back under the stairs again, <laughs> discussing Death on the Nile. This is the third filming of it, and it's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did say it was a spoiler-heavy podcast, and so now you know. <laughs> I really like the Peter Ustinoff version. I really do. It's an all-star cast, and it just worked. It fired on all cylinders. There were things I liked about the David Suchet, too. And this one, well, it looks great. Well, and that's the interesting thing about this, because it's a it's a reasonably, it's an excellent cast. We have, like we said, Gal Gadot and Army Hammer, and uh, there's Letitia Wright. In cannibal days, <laughs> let me get, remind you folks. <laughs> get into that. Annette Benning. <laughs> Uh, Rose Leslie, if you remember her from Ygritte from uh, Game, Game of, of Thrones, Thrones, Russell Brand, Jennifer Saunders, Don French, you know, all of all of the excellent actors. And it's beautifully shot. And the script is, is remarkably faithful. It's, what do you think? Well, I wouldn't say faithful because uh, Brooke was completely, completely added on. Right. And he it's the same nothing... character from Murder on the Orient Express yes. as well. Yes. He is the same character. He is one character following on from Murder on the Orient Express. He is completely added, as is his mother, in a way they substitute for Tim Allerton and his mother. Dr. Windlesham has a completely different name, and he kind of has become a composite of Mr. Ferguson, who turns out to, to be a socialist lord, and Dr. Bessemer, an older German doctor. Rosalie remained, and Cornelia, who was Mrs. Van Schoyler's companion. Mrs. Van Schoyler also had a nurse with her because of her kleptomania tendencies, but Cornelia went along as her as her browbeaten, much younger, poor relation companion, and Cornelia ends up pairing off with Dr. Bessemer as opposed to Lord Fer Ferguson, who turns out to be a, a British lord in disguise because, as she tells him, you'll be impossible to live with. <laughs> they made changes, but the biggest change that they made, because all of the others, you have to take a novel and turn it into a movie, but the biggest change that they made was to Lynnett Ridgway's character. I am sure it is because they hired Gal Gadot, who can act. She's very pretty. She can act. And she's the star. And she opened this movie in 100 countries around the world. Lynnett Ridgway is a spoiled bitch. And this movie really soft-pedaled what kind of a person she was. When you see her in the other two movies, you see someone who... She wants what she wants, and she is going to get it. And so you really don't see why people dislike her so much. And it isn't just because she's rich. It's because she mows over people. She steamrollers over people. In one of the other adaptations, and I can't remember now if it's the Ustinoff one or the um, Suchet one, but you see the English country mansion that she bought is being set up for her to move in, and you see the servants discussing her. You see the peasants on the, the, the fields discussing her, and they're anxious about how she's going to treat them. 
one of the things that this really glossed over was Linnet was immediately attracted to Simon Doyle. And the implication isn't just that because, you know, hey, he's really a hot, but that he belonged to Jackie. He belonged to someone else. And think about this. Linnet is introduced to Simon Doyle when Jackie and uh, Simon are at, are getting in. They've just gotten engaged. They're madly in love. And Linnet sees Simon and she's instantly taken with him. And she doesn't go back to the ladies room to powder her nose and say, my best friend's fiance, my God, he is so hot. And I would I would go to bed with him right now because he is so hot. He's making all my neurons fire, but he is my best friend's fiance the only person who has ever liked me for me the only person who has never cared about the money and i am going to swallow my lust and pick a footman when i get home and i'm just not going to do anything about this and no instead six weeks later linnet is married to simon doyle she took him and there is a scene in the novel uh, this movie completely omitted it but the other two movies touched on it where poirot tells linnet ridgeway the story from the bible about the rich man and the poor man the rich man who had an entire flock of sheep and he sees the poor man with his one little ewe and he takes that ewe even though he has dozens of his own he has plenty but he can't bear that someone has something he doesn't linnet ignores it because of course she's special and hey rules for you but not for me and she does what she wants. She does what she she moves in on Simon Doyle. Again, in the novel, you get a little bit of a conversation that uh, Simon and Jackie. You find this out later at the climax that Simon tells Jackie that he has this plan. You know, I don't love her. I think she's a paradin, but I could marry her and then I could kill her and then we would be rich. And Jackie thinks this is not going to work. <laughs> because i didn't marry you for your brains <laughs> and there's a moment in the last scene that uh jacqueline and linnet have is is linnet hoping that oh we could be friends we can still be friends still i be friends. stole your man yeah. and married him six weeks later and i'm rubbing my wealth and my power in your nose but hey we can still be friends right and she says oh i hope I hope that we can still be friends and that you are the only person who never cared about the money. And she's acknowledging all this, but she's not, there's no edge to her to, like you say, rub her nose in it. It's almost like you want to feel sorry for Lynette Ridgway, even though this is what she did. And for those of us who understand the plot, this is, they know she's going to do this, that she is going to try to steal uh, Simon Doyle, because that sets up the whole plot. Since we're spoiler heavy now, this is the, the hidden couple is, is Simon and Jacqueline. They're still in love with each other. Simon marries Lynette so that he can inherit when she gets murdered. Yeah, yeah. Because Jackie will do anything for Simon. And Simon essentially will do anything for Jackie. And this becomes a plan, but it is a plan that would never have been able to succeed, except that Lynette Ridgway wanted what she wanted she couldn't look at her best friend's fiance and say hands off the he, heart wants what it wants no matter who it hurts now there's also another uh, change in the 
cast as well because they changed the characters of of the Otterborns. Oh yes, because it was Salome Otterborn was a racy romantic novelist along the lines of Eleanor Glynn. She was an alcoholic. She was failing. Her books were now failing. They were no longer uh, what the market wanted, and her and she'd become a closet alcoholic. And her daughter Rosalie is trying desperately to keep things afloat and manage mom's business. And yes, they're mother and daughter, but here it is singer yeah. and niece. Her mother and, and all but. Uh, she becomes a black blues singer, and Rosalie becomes her niece manager. But the relationship is still much the same. One of the differences, of course, is that this Salome, instead of carrying a little flask in her uh, turban, <laughs> she keeps a 45 in her turban. Keeps a 45 in her turban. She drinks to excess like twice a week, but she's certainly not the alcoholic that, that was in the wonderful Houston off. Remember who played her? That was Angela Lansbury, and she was fabulous as Salome. Absolutely fabulous. And that was another change, by the way, because they put Book into the story. Book is the one who is murdered when he's about to reveal what he saw of the murder of Louise, the maid. And in the novel, and in the other two ver play, and in the other two films, it was Salome who was murdered. But they weren't going to shoot Salome. It got to be Book. Yeah, and Salome and Rosalie are different characters from the Audubons in the book. Yes, they, they are rather a, different. They're a blues singer. She's there to entertain. Uh, she's had a blues singer life with multiple husbands. Some of them legal. Some of them not. Uh, she drinks and wonderful voice she does i think i think the actress i think she does her own singing a beautiful voice she does a beautiful job with the songs yeah. and if they dubbed her whoever was doing the singing did a beautiful job she is her own salome otterborn she is completely different from angela lansbury and this shows you of course that the salome whoever played salome in the david suchet version i've completely forgotten who that is because they didn't make any impression on me <laughs> And sometimes that happens. And this changes the dynamics because Salome and Poirot kind of have this sort Rotation. of relation, this flirtation they have, they have this between flirtation. them. And Rosalie and Book are uh, their fiance. They're they're in love with each other and want to marry, but Book's he wants mother, his mother's blessing. And this was another radical change because Book was not a character in the novel, so he is added to it, and so of course is his mother. And as I said. There are aspects of some of the other disappeared characters like Tim Allerton and Mrs. Allerton that are in Book's character. But you've got his mother, who is apparently an Englishwoman from Mayfair. As he says, you know, she doesn't believe anyone exists who wasn't born in Mayfair. Uh, she's horrified at her son wanting to marry Rosalie Otterborn, and not just because Rosalie is black, but also because she's, oh my God, she's in show business. <laughs> and... <laughs> But you get this this diatribe. It's about from, love. It's about love. love. This diatribe love, from period. Euphemia. And why on earth did she ever marry Book in the first Book's father in the first place? She married a Frenchman. And you get this diatribe from out of nowhere. You were given no rationale whatsoever, not even a single line of dialogue in which Book or Poirot, who knows them, says you know, my parents fell madly in love, and then by the time I was two years old, they couldn't stand each other, and they split up, and it's been an acrimonious relationship ever since. Nothing. You get no understanding whatsoever of why Euphemia is telling, essentially telling Book that she would have, she should have aborted him. 
Well, this is, I'm afraid this was also amusing to me because I know you don't care about the actors and their actresses, but this is Annette Benning playing the role. And Annette is Mrs. Right. Warren Mrs. Beatty. Mrs. Warren Beatty. And talk <laughs> about marrying someone as a triumph of hope over experience. experience. Yes, Warren Beatty, who is probably, if, if he didn't bed a Hollywood movie star, then it was his counterpart, Ryan O'Neill. And, uh, <laughs> Don't you have a book on that subject? Oh, yes. Who Had Whom? Who Had Whom? Which was written by one of the co... It was uh, uh, Richard Curtis and uh, the woman who wrote uh, Bridget Jones's diary, uh, Fielding. You know, and they did. They, they connected these chains. And one of the longest ones is Ryan O'Neill and all the lovers that Ryan O'Neill had. And, and Warren Beatty, and, too. Yes, Warren Beatty's in there as well. But networks of, of, love, of lovers <laughs> or one-offs, let's put <laughs> yes, it that and, Let's yes, call it for what it is. It's one-offs. Yes, and, and Annette Benning would know because I think, I think she's still married to Warren Beatty. They've oh, had yeah. children. They've been married for a number of years. It's like once he decided he got to be, I don't know, 50, he decided mm-hmm. that... He wasn't going to play the field anymore, and then that's when he married the, yeah. the hot Annette Benning and had a whole lot of children and presumably settled down. Yeah. But the previous 30 years from, no, 35, from 15 to 50, well, <laughs> he was a busy boy. He was a very he was a very busy boy. He <laughs> developed his skills. There was a, a memoir of uh, Marlon Brando that talked about Warren Beatty in the early years, and his basic game was going up to him and say, hello, do you want to... F- Mm-hmm. And, and some most of, most of the time he was rejected, but apparently he got better at this. He got, at, better, he got better at, at, at his game. Better at it. He got a lot better at it. But let's face it: when you look like Warren Beatty, especially when you're young, Warren oh Beatty. God. Oh my God! So, oh God! But anyway, <laughs> slightly off that. But anyway, here. so it's 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 a kind of a a, a a meta amusement, if I'm using that word correctly, yeah. to watch Annette Benning <laughs> railing against, rail romantic, against love. romantic love because of who she is actually married to in the real world. But in the terms of the movie, it comes absolutely out of nowhere that she is practically hysterical with rage about Rook wanting to marry this girl of another class very much a different social class, which is just as important as the lack of money and the fact that she is of a different racial background and she's an American. And, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, three strikes. Oh, my God. One strike after another, despite the fact that Boop truly loves Rosalie and she makes him be better. She makes him a better person. Yes, he wants to do something with his life instead of just drifting through. Drift, instead of just drifting aimlessly. Now, what do you think about the the revelation that an Euphemia hired Poirot to investigate his background? That seems like so uncharacteristic of Poirot. Or yeah, I know, because Poirot doesn't do divorce work. <laughs> and this is one step removed from divorce work. And again, you don't get a really good explanation for why Poirot would have taken this case other than... The story demands it. Yeah, the plot demands it, but they could have said, I took this case because I care about you and I wanted to be sure that you would be happy. Otherwise, no, I would not have taken this kind of tawdry, peeking in hotel rooms cases. This kind of case is out of character for Poirot. Poirot likes to foster romance. He likes to foster happy relationships. Uh, He's very interested in matchmaking, but he doesn't do this kind of background investigation that i've seen in in the novels or the short stories and the only explanation for this is that they needed it for the plot the plot demanded it but they could have finessed this too just like they could have finessed something about euphemia's diatribe against romance that poirot could have said 
The only reason I took this case was I wanted to be sure that you would be happy with Rosalie. And you would be. I came to the conclusion, oh, yes, she would be fantastic for you. She'll make you a better man in every way. Yes, she is. She was perfect. Perfect in just about every way. There's the, She has no flaws, except she was very judgmental about Poirot. <laughs> but I can understand being <laughs> I can investigated. Understand that. Like, oh, yeah. What, but, you're investigating me? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, again, this, this was a thing that wasn't properly set up. Yeah. Now, the presence of, of Salome meant that they had to use a lot of her music, so they actually open up in a nightclub, which Poirot is visiting for some reason. I guess oh, this is, this oh, is part, part of his of the investigation. Because he had to experience the blues singing. Yes, yeah, so is this is part of the investigation, amusing, like, and he's watching Rosalie negotiate with the manager, and Rosalie is a very smart business manager for her aunt because she expects to be paid up front. Thanks very much. You get burned too many times. That's actually uh, that's actually was Chuck Berry's M.O., as well, he would always get his money up front before the show because he was he'd gotten burned. Cannot rely on some tacky nightclub owner who is worried about making his payroll and paying his other suppliers, and he'll pay the talent last if he can get away with it. Yeah. Because why should he pay if he doesn't have to? Right. So we see Jacqueline and Simon on the floor dancing. Oh my God! They were dancing like she was selling sex in a whorehouse. It was appalling, and I know people can get. You know, in ye olden days, people did some hot dancing. They've always done hot dancing. The male partner is not grinding his pelvis into his bent over partner like he is doing it doggy style in the middle of the dance floor. And then he does it a little bit later with Linnet. And it's just... Well, with, with oh, Linnet, it was actually hoisting her up on his shoulders, yeah, so, it was so like his he's face was right, face right in her right face forward. And, and I, this is the first dance they were going, they were having oh together. I thought, wow, this oh is my just God. And and you're looking at this and thinking, you wouldn't behave this way. Even taxi dancers had higher standards than this. <laughs> Well, that sets the tone for the movie, although it didn't really kind of live up to that They didn't really afterwards. give us a lot of just gratuitous like a, nudity. And, um, no, there was none. In fact, I don't think there was. Yeah, right? I, don't think we got, I don't think we got any actual gratuitous nudity, but they sure implied a lot of gratuitous dry humping on the dance floor. <laughs> and, and it also felt really wrong when Salome came striding out with her electric guitar in 1937. And maybe this is an alternative earth where you plugged in your guitar in well, 1937 and that extension cord must have been like a hundred feet long oh yeah she was walking out onto the dance floor playing the electric guitar and i'm thinking that's that's I, a really long cord and electrification was possible but i don't know how popular it was at that time and they certainly didn't have a cord where you're going to go walking out there like you're angus young from acdc who <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing about pop music, folks. <laughs> well, any guitarist. Think of any guitarist, okay? Uh, Keith Richards, how about that? Um, okay, I'll explain the Rolling Stones to you after the show. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just carry on. Point goes, there was something of an anachronism, although it was very, again, it was very well shot. It was very beautifully well shot. Everything, everything is beautifully shot. It looks absolutely fabulous, which brings me, of course, to the paddle steamer Karnak. We've seen this twice. We yep. saw it in the theater at the Allen Theater, which is a charming and wonderful theater in, in Anvil. uh, Anvil, Pennsylvania. Great old style theater. And even at the time, and I was wowed by how everything looked, I kept thinking, the boat doesn't look real. All that glass, it was pristine. 
pristine. It looked like it, I mean, it wasn't that clean in the shipyards. It was a it big was, boat, too. And it was huge, absolutely huge. And see, the other two Death on the Niles uh, were actually filmed, large portions of it were filmed on board a ship. In Egypt. In Egypt. On they the were, Nile. On the Nile. They were actually on a ship in Egypt, in the Nile, where the cast is sweating bullets and the Karnak in Sir Kenny's film was not real. They built a boat on a parking lot sized soundstage. It was not real. That They may have put that on railroad tracks so they could get a little rocking and a rolling like a ship would. I mean, and I know that the Nile must be like sailing on a bathtub, but you still get some movement of the ship and you will have ripples from the bow. And it just didn't look real it's really the kind of thing though that only if you're actually paying attention to that would you start to really wonder i mean everything looked fabulous and maybe it looked too fabulous it was too fabulous it, was like a video game. it didn't look real and that's because it wasn't there's there according to the credits they did shoot in cotswold water park in syracaster because they had some very nice crisscross uh you know uh polished teak motorboats of the period very very nice there were some sailing boats on the nile very very nice yeah. but you didn't look at them closely but you got a lot of look at the karnak and that was another thing that was absolutely bizarre and stupid but apparently the captain would announce the boat would anchor right. at night and then the crew would leave the ship they would abandon the ship until 6 a.m. the next morning. The captain has a stateroom. The crew is going to be down there in the hold. You don't walk away from the ship, especially when you have passengers on board who can do stupid-ass shit, because passengers will do stupid-ass shit, unlike freight. <laughs> and, <laughs> All you can think of is is some of the Arabs on the shore swimming out to the ship and robbing everybody. And I know, I know. I mean, I know there are crocodiles in the river, but you're going to take your chances if you have a chance to come away with, with, with armloads of jewelry, including a diamond the size of a chicken egg. <laughs> Where is the crew going? They're setting up tents on the, on the shores of the Nile with the crocodiles when they could be sleeping in their berths. And it just gives you more of that sense of unreality. It gives you a sense of unreality when you see women pursers on board that ship wearing shorts and, and knee socks like the men. And this is Egypt in 1937? No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Same thing with women pallbearers carrying Linnet's corpse down the uh, gangplank? No, I don't think so. It, it's it, He was in a totally fake Egypt. It, it was fantasy Egypt. Well, and I noticed also, and this is one of those things where if you go back and look at like the Peter Houston off version and you look at the ship and how it's moving, and it, yes, it doesn't bob, but there's wind, there's smoke that comes from the smokestacks, and, and even in there, if they had the smoke going in front of the ship, it's actually being pushed ahead of the ship because that's the way the wind currents were. And you also heard the sound of the engines, and I don't know if we ever heard the engines going when they're outside. I don't, I don't think that we did. Even, when, even when they were standing in front of the paddle wheel with Louise's body going around and around on the paddle wheel, and she should have been, her body should have been quite a bit more broken up when they fished her out and laid her out on the deck. She should have been considerably more broken up, even though she was dead when she went in the water, but even so. So Kenny likes going for effects. And they look good at the moment, but when you start to think about them, you go, wait a minute, that wait doesn't, minute. that makes no sense whatsoever. 
if it works during the movie, it works during the movie. That's right. Wasn't wasn't it uh, Alfred Hitchcock? Yes. (laughs) As long as the audience doesn't say until after they've left the theater. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) So that makes no sense at all. The story works. You're still caught up in the story. And I have to admit, this time around, Sir Kenny got his ego in a box locked away, since there was far less attention paid to Poirot than in Orient Express. Oh my God, yes. And I think this is actually a little bit shorter movie, too. This is two hours and seven minutes as opposed to whatever Orient Express was. But yeah, this was much less of a Sir Kenny uh, look at me, uh, aren't I great, aren't I multi-talented celebration of his genius uh, (laughs) film rather than what we got with Orient Express. God, the Mexican standoff where everybody whips. <laughs> oh, yeah, the second one is held now. <laughs> Ending up uh, at the climax, we had three people pulling out guns and aiming them at each other because we saw this in the labors of Hercules. I know, I know. And you're back at that mercenary bar the Deadpool hangs out at. <laughs> <laughs> thinking, what is it with these British people and their guns? I know, you would think they didn't have any gun control laws. Everybody is armed at all times. Now, is this the second time we've seen this or the third? This is the second time this we've seen Death the on the Nile. Time. Okay. This Death on the Nile. This version of Death on the Nile. But oh, yeah. And, and if yeah. I'm going to watch Death on the Nile again, I'm going to watch Peter Ustinov, and I'm going to get to see uh, David Niven as Colonel Race race out and whip out his sword cane and behead a cobra. And there was a cobra in this one, too. A little, maybe a little shout out to that scene. And But this time Poirot, with his cane, manages to to keep to the cobra it. from from attacking uh, our from attacking mm-hmm. Linnet, and I was about to say our heroine, and she's not our heroine. Yeah, he has he pins it down. He doesn't cut its head off because it's curve in the cane. So all he he does it very humanely. You know, no animals were slaughtered <laughs> in the making of this movie. <laughs> I definitely would want to watch the original Peter Ustinoff version. And I would, and I would watch the uh, David Suchet version as well. But I think I'm pretty much done with this one. One of the things that's been really great about the Agatha Christie movie marathon project is getting to see the same story told by different directors. Bill and I started this podcast very, very late in the uh, movie watching experience. We'd already watched like 150 Agatha Christie's by the time we started talking about them here on the podcast. But one of the really interesting things has been how a different director, different stars, a different writer, what they will emphasize or de-emphasize in the same movie using the same source material and you get wildly different results. Death on the Nile is not, the three versions are not as wildly different as, say, the three versions of the ABC murders, where you have Tony Randall, and it was truly dreadful, <laughs> and then you had David Suchet, which was just a marvel, and then you have uh, the Sarah Phelps version with John Malkovich, and, oh, God, but it was still better than Tony Randall. Uh, <laughs> don't make me watch either of them. They played so fast and loose with the text. Here, they didn't play fast and loose with the text nearly as much, and yet the emphasis on particularly Linnet Ridgeley's character here is so different from the two previous versions and from the novel. And I really think that it is because they used Gal Gadot as the star. She is the star, and she is not going to be an evil villainous and she is not going to have it coming when she is shot in the other two versions she is an utterly selfish person and she really doesn't 
care how she harms other people or their effect on them because, hey, she's special and she gets what she wants and she does what she wants and she is a smart woman. She is a very smart woman, a very capable woman. She is a powerful woman and power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you keep coming back to the essential fact, which even this version, which tried to make you feel deeply sympathetic for Lynette Ridgway, you still come back to the fact that Lynette Ridgway saw Simon Doyle, her best friend's fiance, and said, I want. Now, this was a movie that was supposed to come out a couple of years ago. And between got- the pandemic and uh, Army Hammer's uh, cannibal, cannibal <laughs> tendencies <laughs> in public <laughs> well and the accusations and again this is one of those panics would be the best way to put it because apparently he is when i last looked it up on wikipedia there's no charges there's no investigations not much evidence of anything so his career pretty much got trashed because he opened his stupid mouth he opened his stupid mouth and you know accusations that could not be proven and he hasn't worked since so i don't know he's probably just resting on his family money and well I don't know. Don't know I don't what know. To him next. So but this he, was a cr- kind of a cursed production, and we'll see if we get anything more from Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, well. I I don't know because I think when the movie came out in early spring of this year of 2022, there was talk about what he was going to do next. So there's really a lot of them that they were only done once in the English-speaking market, and I know this for a fact because I watched them all, that only David Suchet has done one, and some of them David Suchet did not do a particularly good job of, and I'm looking at you, a murder of Roger Ackroyd, which was terrible. There, There's a lot of Poirot's that Sir Kenny could adapt and do an interesting job with, or at least they'll be beautiful to watch, and they'll put Agatha in front of an entirely new audience that hasn't heard of her before. But this production was... What can I say? I mean, it looked absolutely gorgeous. It was really well acted. Uh, The scenery, uh, the very finest CGI you can possibly imagine. Uh, So it has that slight otherworldly unrealness. Salome Otterborn, beautiful voice, wonderful songs. And then you think, this is really kind of tedious, and would you just get on with it? Like that scene with Book, where Book gets shot. Book is trying to explain to Poirot why he didn't reveal who the murderer was of Louise. And he's trying to cover up his own crime because, of course, he stole the the, uh, diamond necklace so that he and Rosalie could go off and live happily ever after without his mother's approval. He can't bring it. And and I'm watching this and thinking, the plot is making you stupid, isn't it? Your red coat is over in the Nile because it got sprayed with Louise's arterial blood. There's this very artful blood spatter all across the um the wall the wall and i i can't remember the correct name for that bulkhead (laughs) for a ship (laughs) for a ship navy training is fading (laughs) yes my navy training is faded long ago i remember overheads and i remember decks but i don't remember what connects them anymore and there's this beautiful blood spatter i mean it is like somebody has taken a paintbrush and carefully dotted on each dot of blood to make them symmetrical from the deck sweeping up and then a big gap where uh, Book was apparently standing in his coat with his hand up as he's looking in horror as Louise is having her throat cut and then her body thrown overboard where she gets caught up in the paddle wheel and okay well sure whatever he's not telling this to Poirot 
He knows Poirot is investigating two separate murders. And it has nothing to do with the necklace. So and it I has nothing to do with the necklace. Why, why revealing what he saw would have affected the, the necklace part of the case. Except somebody has to be shot by Jackie. And since it's not going to be Salome Otterborn, who in the, in the novel and in the two previous film versions, it was Salome who finally realized what she saw. And, and that was handled much better because remember in the novel and in the two previous film adaptations, Salome was an alcoholic and she was drunk and she couldn't quite think of what it was that she saw but she comes over and then makes this big dramatic scene because she's a big dramatic woman and, you know, she's getting to the point and then she's shot. As artificial as that was, that still felt much more realistic than this, which felt like the scriptwriter really needed to drag it out in order to give Jackie time to steal Cousin Andrew's pistol, his forty-five, run all the way back down around the side of the ship and shoot Book in the head. Which we never find out how she knows to do this because all Poirot focuses on is Simon saying at the last minute something like do come, it or do it come on come on and there's no indication that she knew that this was going down and she had to do something about it whereas in the novel if I and remember in, correctly in, in, and in, in the both movie films, Simon said something out loud that could be heard outside that's the right room. that's right he was shouting out information to Jackie his partner in crime so that she knew what to do and you see that uh Sir Andrew Pennington they changed his name here but he was it George C. Scott in no. the Eustonoff version? Oh, Pennington? No, that was, let's see, in the Eustonoff version, that was Kennedy. George Kennedy. George Kennedy, yeah. Okay, okay. I, I knew he looked very familiar. And how did Simon Doyle tell Jackie? And that was completely glossed over. You have no idea. Then she is, cha she, remember, she is wearing a floor-length hooded <laughs> bathrobe. And she is racing away from Poirot. Now, granted, she is like 40 years younger than he is and presumably reasonably athletic and wearing athletic shoes. But even so, she is hampered by a floor-length hooded bathrobe. In black. In black. And he does, nobody stops her, I guess because the crew is overboard right now. The crew is overboard. They run through the kitchen and he, she pulls over a pot of boiling, boiling hot water on the stove onto Poirot. There is no crew in the kitchen. <laughs> they walk away. They leave things burning in the kitchen and the, with live steam because they, she actually throws one of the manages to hit one of the steam lines and live steam comes out. And where is the crew? They're on the shore of the Nile in a tent. Yep. Poirot loses, he, he is not able to catch up with her despite the fact that she is hampered by a running in a floor-length bathrobe with a hood concealing her face so she can't breathe. And then minutes, you know, seconds later, you see Poirot gathering everybody and there's Jackie all in white and she's not even breathing hard. I breathing hard he should be bleeding with his hands on the bulkhead gasping for air i know he's not that physically fit and he, we all know that poirot has got to be like 60 and <laughs> well he was a soldier in the war though remember they they de-aged him because he was a soldier in 1914 that's true that's and true. so he's only in, like in his 40s now okay but still even in your 40s 40 year old men have freak. to work at it to maintain that kind of level of fitness. Yep. They really 
do. And I have seen 40-year-old men who have worked very hard to maintain that level of fitness because I remember being being the PT officer in the Navy and 40-year-old captains and 20-year-old yeoman third class, uh, it, it offends them very much when a 40-year-old can do as many sit-ups as a 22-year-old. <laughs> but you have to work at it. And we never see one single sign of Poirot doing anything that is hot or sweaty. And yet he is apparently able to chase a Jacqueline up and down through the ship with no crew getting in the way, even though they're obviously cooking was going on moments before in the galley. And, and then nobody's breathing hard. And it was like this, all the way through, all of this utter perfection, completely unrelated to actual ships or actual people. And in reality, because they would, uh, in stories from the Peter Ustinoff movies, they would, ha they would start filming as soon as possible because by noontime it was impossible to do anything. It was that hot. It was that hot. That's the advantage, of course, of filming in, in England is it never gets that hot. That's why they don't have air conditioning, because it never gets that hot. But it gives you, again, that air of unreality. Nobody ever looks like they're sweating. They don't look like they're in Egypt, because they're not sweating. But I will mention one more thing. I just looked up, and yes, there is a third Poirot movie in the works. Oh my God, what is it? It is. Well, we don't know for sure. This is from comic book. This? this is from March of this year. Oh, well. And, but it is from 20th Century Fox. It's the studio president saying that they, the Michael Green, who wrote these first two installments, are working on a third one. Daring shift in genre and tone. It's post-war Venice and an adaptation of one of the lesser-known novels. Venice? Venice, which is not a part of Agatha's Christie Ovier. Ovier so it's going to be another beautifully manicured, highly polished story. Um, there was a mention, though, that one of the characters is, shares a similar name in this one to, to one of the ones in Dumb Witness, and that was the speculation that it might be that one. Oh, God. If, they do, if they do Dumb Witness, are they going to keep Bob? They have to keep Bob. <laughs> Bob was so cute. He was so clever. He was just a wonderful dog. Oh, yeah, God. That, that's that's all, that's all we know, except that he also came out. Remember, Ken, Kenny's also came out with the idea of a shared universe, an Agatha Christie multiverse in which Miss Marple and Poirot could appear in the same movie. So keep your fingers crossed. We'll see oh what happens. God. Well, they're doing it in Japan with anime. So and we, we have yet to watch that, folks, but we will talk about it when we get to it. Uh, so we'll find out. Uh, <laughs> but, of course, <laughs> studio execs can say, anything but until you see the film at your local cinema or on, 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 on hbo IMDb. yeah until you see it it does the development doesn't mean a thing Absolutely. it does not mean anything now, so the question we'll is that would we look forward to this well so we would have to watch it of course i mean even if i have to go in <laughs> with my smelling salts and my pearls <laughs> No, you don't. You don't clutch them that hard. We're, you're very, you're very flexible. We are not. We're, we're not purists. We're not fundamentalists fundamentalist for for Agatha Christie. The uh, you know. We've seen some. We've seen some stuff. And, and when we go to the overseas ones, I can't wait to show you the little crimes of Agatha Christie, the French version. I That's really, going to be different, folks. That That's going to really be different. different. I mean, I really liked Miss Marple in Ordeal by Innocence, and no, she was not in that movie at all. And they changed that one rather substantially, but it still worked. Now, Miss Marple in Endless Night, that was 
terrible Miss Marple in uh, The Pale Horse. Hey, that was really good. Really enjoyed that. Uh, so I can be flexible. I can be very flexible, but we'll find out. And remember, if you want to talk to us in person, uh, go to our website, peschelpress.com, and we always list our upcoming events in the central Pennsylvania area. And sometimes we go a bit further afield, but you can see where we're going to be if you want to talk about Agatha Christie with us. And this concludes another episode of Agatha Christie, She Watched. We will have to find out uh, in a little bit what we're going to watch next, and we're not quite sure. But until then, we'll be seeing you at the movies. Agatha Christie, She Watched, is Teresa Peschel and Bill Peschel. Produced by Bill Peschel. Theme song, Call to Adventure, by Kevin McLeod. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery She Watched, email peschel at peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to peschel at peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.